I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 17. Uh, we made it to this chapter that many of you have been waiting for. It's a very well-known chapter, a very well-known story, and today we're going to be looking at this story of David and Goliath, and I've preached this um, passage before, and I've done the whole chapter in one sermon, but for the sake of really diving into this chapter, we're going to do it into three, so we'll spend the next three weeks in this chapter and the story of David and Goliath. But let me read the first 11 verses of chapter 17 of 1 Samuel. So if you have your copy of God's Word, it'll, um, it'll also be on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you. And always, if you want a Bible, a book, an actual book, at the end of our service in our welcome area, we invite you to ask for one. We love to give away Bibles, so please feel free to ask for a Bible. We'd love to give you one. So... Um, 1 Samuel 17, the first 11 verses, this is the word of the Lord. It says, Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Sacco, and which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sacco and Azekah, in Ephes Damon. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah. And drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield bearer went before him. And he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Let's pray one more time for the Lord to bless this time together. Father, we come to you now as the church who has opened up your word. We've read your truth. Now we ask that you teach us your truth. Holy Spirit, help us understand and help us apply you who discern the hearts of all in this space right now. May you do according to your will. And may you show grace and mercy. Encourage your people and save those who are far from you. And that your word will go out powerfully today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
As I said, this story of David and Goliath is perhaps one of the most well-known stories in all the Bible. If you grew up in church, you've been hearing about David and Goliath your whole life. Perhaps in Sunday school, you still remember the flannographs that your teacher stuck on some a flannel board, or perhaps some pictures that were shown to you, or perhaps you had a childhood illustrated Bible where you had a mental picture of what uh, uh, David and this giant, what they looked like. And even if you didn't grow up in church, perhaps you have heard, I'm sure you have heard of David and Goliath, and you know it to be a story from the Bible. But one thing is to know about the story. One thing is to know the characters, but another thing is to know why the story. Why is this story in the Bible? What is the purpose of this story? And many people have, have had different opinions on what this story is about. God has one intention with this story that I'm hoping that we will discover today. But many have forced to this story to say what it never intended to say, what the original author never intended for it to mean. Many have, have distorted the truth of this story in different ways. For example, it is an error to think that this story is about how we need to be brave like David and how we need to face our giants and how we need to have the faith of David to slay those giants. Perhaps there's some type of application there, but that's not the intention of the story. And some have even attempted to allegorize the story, try to find a hidden meaning in the details of the story. For instance, some would suggest that these five stones that David picks up to eventually slay the giant each of these stones represent something. I actually looked this up and some would say in their, in their message that these five stones represented one, the stone of courage or the stone of faith or the stone of obedience, the stone of trust or the stone of praise. One of these is going to slay the giant. The thought that whenever we face any kind of giant in our lives. We can carry these five stones with us. And if we just have enough faith and we do what we're supposed to do, that we will have victory. Well, many have misinterpreted this text. This text has no hinted meaning. There are no stones to turn over to try to discern. This story is not a call to us to be like David, to be the hero of the story, to even imitate in the way that he fights against a Goliath. This story is not about us. And for us to understand what this text is about, we, we have to understand a few things. One, as I said, we're not the hero. Who is the hero? The hero is God. He is the one who is always, repeatedly, if you've been with us during the time in 1 Samuel, we have understood that God is the one who is saving his people. It is God. And we are not David. We're not called to be David. You know who we are in this story? We are the terrified Israelites. 
We are the ones who are not brave enough to go down into the valley and fight against this giant. Part of the purpose of the story is that we would understand that we need a David, like Israel needed a David. We needed this champion. We needed this hero. This is what the story is ultimately about. The Lord is out to save his people through a greater David, even greater than the one that we see in the story. For this story is pointing to one who is of his lineage, one who is a descendant of David, who is Jesus, the one that through his sacrifice and through his victory on the cross, he conquered death and hell and brought salvation to God's people. This is what this text is about, and I want us to see this this morning, that although we will find in this story Stories of personal people, like there are individuals here that the text speaks of. And there's the reality of the nation of Israel and their predicament with these Philistines. But more than all those details, may all those details point us to the redemptive purpose of the story that transcends all, all, all centuries and generations and all the way in 2022 applies to us. We need this greater David, whose name is Jesus. But as we see this text, I want us to see a contrast. So I think that's what the author is trying to help us see. The contrast of what is perceived as strength, Goliath. He is perceived as one who has incredible strength versus David, who we'll see next week more so, who is perceived to operate with incredible weakness. What a contrast. And how God works through perceived weakness in order to accomplish his redemptive purposes. So the main idea, if you're taking note, write this down, is the only point I have today. God defeated our greatest enemy through the perceived weakness of a greater David, Jesus. God defeated our greatest enemy through the perceived weakness of the greater David, Jesus. So let's look at this text. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 17, here we go again. Verse 1, now the Philistines have gathered their armies for battle. How many times have we seen this already in the book of 1 Samuel? Several times. The first time we saw this was in chapter 4 where they had assembled once again and they fought against Israel. And Israel, they had this idea, why don't we bring out the Ark of the Covenant out of the tabernacle and let's have it go before us. And we know what happened, if you remember. Israel was defeated. The Philistines, they took the Ark of the Covenant, put into the Temple of Dagon. And that story is very interesting how eventually they were defeated, that God defeated them by bringing upon them plagues and tumors and they had no other choice but to return the Ark. That's the first time we see the Philistines really confronting Israel. In chapter 7, once again, we see the Philistines. They came up at Mizpah, and they came, but this time around, Israel had repented of their sin. The prophet Samuel had been praying for them, and Israel had victory over their enemies. And a few times over, we see the Philistines appear, and Israel is like, okay, we need to figure this out. 
We need a champion. We need a king. We need someone who will fight our battles. Did they need a king or someone to fight their battles? No, because God was sufficient for them. He had proved himself to be the only one that they needed, but they demanded something tangible. They wanted to see a king. And so in that disobedience and, you know, of the, of the Lord speaks to Samuel, you give them their king. They want an earthly one, let them have it, and they'll experience what it means to have a king other than me. And they chose Saul. They chose Saul for a reason. He was a good-looking man. He was tall. His entire head was taller than all the men of Israel. He was strong. He had a presence in any room that he walked in through. And yes, he had some victories because the Spirit of God was upon him for that very purpose. But we know from the story that because of disobedience and foolishness from Saul, the outcome of his battles were never full victory. As a matter of fact, we find in 1 Samuel 14 that all the days of Saul, he would have to fight against the Philistines. It was hard fighting against the Philistines, is what it says, all the days of Saul. So Saul, the king, had failed miserably. He had rejected the word of the Lord. And now the Lord has, in the previous chapter, he has now rejected Saul. He has removed his spirit from him, although he is still the king physically, and he will be for the remainder of this book. But, but he, is no, he is no longer God's man. He is no longer the anointed one. We just saw in the previous chapter that God has anointed a new king that very few people know about because it was something that was done in secret. It was this child of Jesse, the youngest one of his boys, who upon Samuel approaching, reaching Bethlehem to anoint this king upon receiving word from the Lord, he makes it to Jesse's house. He's like, hey, one of you God is going to call to be the next king of Israel. And Jesse lines up all his sons and none of these. And, and Samuel had a moment where he thought it was Eliab because he was of tall stature and he was handsome and strong. And the Lord reminded him, this is not, I'm not looking for the external. I'm looking for the internal. I'm looking for something specific. And eventually all the sons pass before Samuel, and then Samuel tells Jesse, surely you have another son, because none of these are him. And Jesse's like, well, I have this young son, the youngest of all. He's out tending some sheep right now. And that moment in the chapter where Samuel's like, okay, bring him here. No one sit down. We're not eating, because the one who's coming in is the one who I will anoint. And so this young man, a teenager, comes, he walks in, not, not understanding what's going on, and he is anointed the one who will rule Israel. And the Spirit of God left Saul and came upon David. We have to understand in verses 1 and 2 here the context of what's happening the Philistines are menacing once again, and they are now in line and camped on the side of a mountain. And on the opposite mountain, we have Israel there. And between the two armies, there's this big valley. And in this valley, 
which is, by the way, about 12 miles outside of Bethlehem where David lives. And I understand that this Valley of Elah, you can still visit this today if you take a tour of Israel. They, they will take you there and they will show you this is the valley where David faced Goliath. And these are the hills and the mountains by which these two armies encamped for so many days. And this is a serious moment because if you notice in the text, it says that the Philistines were encamped in a place that belonged to Judah. In other words, they had gone into Israel territory. This is like, like a Russia invading Ukraine. They're inside of their borders and they're attacking. They're on the offense against Israel and the situation is very, very difficult. The text tells us of this valley in between and we find out afterwards that at the bottom of this valley there's a brook, there's a little river that runs and in the winter the, the water is flowing but in the summer it is dry because of the lack of rain and we'll find out later that when David goes and picks up these five stones to fight against the giant, he goes actually into the valley, into this river and this is where he collects these round stones. And as we read the story, as we unpack the story, I want us to realize the details. I think the author wants to suck us into the story. He, he, he wants to move our minds so that we can imagine ourselves there. Perhaps this story has more detail than, than many other events, even in the book of 1 Samuel. It seems like, like from their posture right now, these two armies are facing each other with this valley in between, and it seems like no one wants to advance. No one wants to go down the valley and up the other side of the hill to attack the other army, and probably because that puts you in a disadvantage. If you go down to the valley, your enemies are above you, and you're a sitting ducks. And perhaps no one had decided Hey, this isn't a good war strategy to just go into this valley. But here's what we could do. The Philistines said, hey, why don't we do this? Why don't we send our champion? Why don't we send down Goliath of Gath? Let him go down into the valley where he could speak loudly and his voice would resonate among the mountains. And may he go down and taunt and threaten the Israelites to see what they are made of, to see if they would really dare to fight us. It's amazing how in verse four, the author, again, to draw us into the story, for us to have mental pictures. I think this is why this story is great for children, because children have such an imagination that they can see what this thing looks like, and it leaves us wanting to know more. But look what he says about Goliath of Gath, the champion of the Philistines. He says, he speaks about his size, his height, that translated into our numbers, right just over nine feet tall. Yes, taller than Shaquille O'Neal, who I think is 7-1. Yes, taller than Andre the Giant. Some of you guys have no idea who that is. Yes, taller than than a, a Sultan Kosin, which is a Turkish man who is currently the tallest man 
in the world at eight feet, three inches tall. Goliath was just about a foot taller than that man. And the, the text speaks about his chainmail armor that he wore. And if we translate that also to our numbers, it was about 150 pounds heavy. For those of you who like working out, you put two 45-pound plates on a 45-pound bar. Not that I work out, but, but I used to, used to, a long time ago. That's 135 pounds. 135 pounds, add a few more, and you, know, you, you get to 150. That's heavy. That's heavy. That's the weight of his chain mail. His spear, it speaks about his spear is so large that it was said that a regular man could not put their hand around it and get the tip of the spear. This chunk of iron with a, with a sharp edge was believed to weigh approximately 16 pounds. Imagine holding that spear, that javelin, and with that weight in the front, you and I would not be able to hold that. And I think, why, why so much detail about Goliath? Because I think the author is trying to draw out of us, wow, dude, that is big. He's trying to, for, for us to understand the magnitude of what's happening here. This guy is invincible. He is impenetrable just by looking at him. So as he's in the valley and he's taunting the Israelites, the obvious response is, no way. No one could fight this guy. And it's interesting, on top of that, he has a shield bearer that goes before him carrying his shield. Who knows how big that shield is? But if I'm the arm bearer, it's like, ¿Qué yo hago aquí? You're like, why am I even here? Why am I even here? You don't need me, man. I just imagine him being a regular-sized man. So not only is he describing for us, this is what Goliath looks like, this massive war machine, physically tangible for all to see, but we also see how he speaks to Israel. First time in the book of Samuel that we have so many words written down of what is said to the armies of Israel. And here we have, I, I, I imagine this guy to be like a nine-foot Conor McGregor talking trash. <laughs> Some of you guys know what I'm saying. And he stood in front of the armies in this valley, and he shouted at all the soldiers, and he asked him from his perspective a rhetorical question. Why have you come out to draw up for battle? In other words, you have no reason to be here. Look at me. Am I not a Philistine? I'm the very embodiment of what this army stands for. Why are you here? You're so ins insignificant that all you are is the servants of Saul. By the way, where is Saul? He's hiding in some tent. He doesn't know how to handle this situation. And he doesn't say, bring Saul out here. You're a champion. You're a tall man, strong man. Bring, no, no, he, no, he says, look, forget him. Bring any man. 
Choose a man for yourselves. Let him come down and deal with me. Why have you come out here? Why are you wasting your time? And if you know the rest of the story, which we'll see later on, this happened for 40 days. 40 days. I guess a rotation up on the mountains. Hey, I'm going to sleep in the tent. You wake up. You put your shoes on. You put your gear on. You get back in line. And, and, and every day the giant will go down into the valley to taunt and to taunt. And he's just getting emboldened as he taunts. I'm sure at some point soldiers are asking themselves on the you know, side of Israel, yeah, what are we doing here? <laughs> Seriously, what? Why are we even here? Why have we come out here? We're not going to fight this guy. Remember that these Israel soldiers represent us. We would also be the ones to say, I just, nope, find somebody else because that ain't me. I can never stand in front of that. I will I have too much fear of death and, and pain. That could not be me. And, and, for, and these Israelites were powerless and fearful and they were paralyzed, unwilling to fight or respond to the taunting words of, these, of this Philistine. I defy you. Here I am dressed in armor to kill, ready to fight, you and all of you if I need to, but you're just the servants of Saul. No one, you can't bring anybody out who could size me up. So the emboldened Philistine has put in the heads and minds of Israel and Saul, because verse 11 ends with, and they're all terrified. They have now believed this lie. He's a champion. And it's interesting because the word champion, they call the champion of the Philistines, Goliath of Gath, the word a champion means literally a man of the between, a man that stands in between. And as he's in the middle of the valley, the champion of the Philistines, the one who is standing in between, he is inviting, send your champion. Who, who among you is willing to, able to stand in between? He demoralizes them. And maybe Israel is saying, maybe the guys are saying amongst themselves, yeah, there was a day when we thought we had our guy. There was a day when we thought we had Saul, we had a king. We asked the Lord to give us one who will fight our battles. But where is Saul? He is terrified, he is afraid. Yes, we had chosen him, he was our giant, he was our warrior, he was supposed to be our hero, but he ended up being a bust, a dud. He was our best shot, our best chance but not here, not this time. Fearful, powerless, Saul no longer had the spirit of God in him, so he had no more fight left in him. But we know that God doesn't look at the exterior. God is not looking for the tall and strong 
and good looking. God isn't impressed with Goliath and his size. I remind you of the words of God to the prophet Samuel, 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. Samuel, when he was mesmerized by, by Eliab, the oldest son of Jesse, he told him, no, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Oh, in this story, because this story is about God, because he is the hero of the story. He is the one who's redeeming his people. Oh, God has his man. God has already anointed this man. But this man is not who you think he will be. As a matter of fact, it's the last person you would think will be. As a matter of fact, his father wouldn't even believe that he is the man that God has raised. It's really coming out of left field. And yet biblical history, the story of the Bible, demonstrates that this is how the Lord redeems his people through perceived weaknesses and not perceived strengths. And he's proving this to be true in this story. The God who created the heavens and the earth, the God who is sovereign, omnipotent, who knows the order of history, who as we saw last week, in his providence, he allows things to happen and he's orchestrating things to accomplish his purposes. He absolutely knows and providentially allows and this whole idea of this giant to appear and to go down into this valley, this giant who would be all terrifying, who has all these perceived strengths, God is setting up the story in order to defeat these, these perceived strengths through the means of perceived weaknesses, through the means of a young boy. Because ultimately this story is pointing towards a larger story. And David, who will be the hero for the moment as a young man who will slay the giant, he is also what is known as a type of Christ. He is just a representative, an illustration of the one who were to come, the one who will have victory over our greatest enemy. And this is what the Lord is doing. Forty days of taunting. Forty days of saying, verse 10, I defy you, the people of Israel and your God. And the best that Israel could do, who had asked for a king, who has forgotten their God, their best response was to be dismayed and greatly afraid. They looked at each other. And they said, we don't have a king who can fight for us. None of us would dare fight Goliath. To do so will be a suicide mission. What do we do? What do we do about this predicament we're in? You know that what, what, what plagues man from the beginning of time is the same predicament that still plagues him 
today? Because it sounds very familiar. How often do we look at the work and the attacks of the enemy and say, what can we do about this? When we see the forces of evil at play, we ask, what can be done? When we're fighting and praying for the souls of our very own children and you see their behavior and and the wayward ways, what can we do? Lord, are you are you hearing? Are you there? When we're praying for the salvation of another person whom we love, do we believe that God is capable of penetrating that darkness and bringing salvation? And so I think whatever scenario in our lives that causes us to doubt and to fear and to be anxious, I think sometimes, even Christians, we live as if we don't have a champion. We live as if we don't have someone standing in between. We live as if we don't have someone who has fought our battles and conquered. We live so easily defeated lives full of fear and anxiety and disappointments with uncertainty because we live as if no one can defeat the sting of death. And I say the sting of death because ultimately it is death that we are most afraid of. Because the Bible does say in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. And so our sinful responses to asking the question, what do we do? We don't have a champion. We don't have a victor. We don't have a savior, a hero. We live as if we don't. Is because we're sinning against the Lord who has promised and who has accomplished. And what happens is that the reason why we fear, because ultimately what we are most afraid of is death. And therefore, where's the gospel in those moments? Oh, Israel, the Israeli army were paralyzed, defeated. Why? Because they knew whoever would go down to fight Goliath would die. They forgot the promises of God. They forgot his covenant. Victory was theirs because God was more than willing to provide it. But their only response could only be in response to what they see, what is tangible to them. And as always, Israel has always forgotten the truths of God and the faithfulness of God and the promises of God. They even forgot in this very own book, 1 Samuel chapter 2, Hannah, Samuel's mom, if you remember, when she broke out in song and she had these prophetic words, when she says in verses 9 and 10 of 1 Samuel 2, he will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed prophetic words that are declaring that the champion who God has provided, God will make sure that he succeeds, that he would be the man who will stand in between, not the man who will be 
tall and strong and menacing like Goliath, not a challenger to Goliath. Who is Goliath when you're talking about God, the one who's bringing the victory? God is the one who is redeeming. So what does the Lord do? And what is perceived to be weak against what's perceived to be strong, he uses a boy to be that champion, to be that man in between. A boy that will show up in the scene. If we, if we talk about, again, about the providence of God, if you continue to read the story, David shows up because he's bringing sandwiches to his brothers and some cheese to some friends. And he's there because his father sends him. He says, come right back because that battlefield is not for you. And his brothers eventually see him. They're like, what are you doing here? Hands him a sandwich. Go back home. It's too dangerous for you out here. And it's through this young man who now has the spirit of God, who the spirit upon leaving Saul has, is now arresting on David. And in the midst of all these threats, in the midst of this terrifying giant, in the midst of the presence of this powerful army, the forces of darkness cannot stop the redemptive purposes of God and his promises to save. And he will accomplish that in a very most unexpected way through what is perceived to be weak. No different today. Our world is no different today. The world today is an absolute defiance against God, has rejected God, has deliberately taunted God and dismissed God. And what we are tempted to do is to be crippled in fear, to run to our shelters, to try to self-persevere, to see how long we can last without being slaughtered. Oh, the city, and this world, I mean, who, who are we in light of the city and the size of this world? We have this call to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. How can we make a difference? How can we reason with people who, have no, who no longer have a worldview that is pointing to any kind of Christianity? How do we reach a world that has become, a society that has become so, so secular where the things of God no longer matter? Oh, we start to think these ways, and we start to lose sight that and we have a powerful God who has redemptively purposed himself to provide a champion hero who came in unexpected ways to accomplish what we could not for his glory and for our good. We cannot do it, but God can, and he's accomplished it through what seems to be weak so we'll see that David will ultimately be the one and the only reason why he's the one is not because of anything in David it's because the spirit of God was in David God is the one who does it and God is the one who ultimately is through this type of Christ through this picture this imagery that's happening in this valley of Elah he is pointing to a greater victory where it, it isn't the defeat of just an enemy of Israel represented by this giant. No, no. The greatest of victories is through this greater David 
who will now look at hell and death and the enemy square in the face and conquer it, slaughter it. And then he would be the one who would then appease the wrath of God, the wrath of God that's upon every sinner. He is the one who will stand in between and say, hey, my sacrifice, my finished work, my righteousness is sufficient to bring victory and to bring safety over the wrath of God who must punish sin of sinners. Well, the greatest of victories came through this greatest of Davids. And yet Jesus was perceived as very weak. Because if you know the story of the cross, as we approach Easter, this man who was God in the flesh, who walked among us and his people knew him not, was a man who got tired as he sat on the well with the Samaritan woman, give me a drink. Was a man who emptied himself, Philippians 2, to the form of a man. That he was one who would be ridiculed, beaten, spit on, nailed to a cross, shamed in the most Shameful of Roman deaths. Save yourself if you are the son of God. <laughs> Look at this weak Messiah of yours. Put a sign on the cross that says, King of the Jews. And through what was perceived weakness before a fallen, sinful, dark world became the greatest moment of victory the world has ever seen. When on the third day of being buried, he rose from the dead, he conquered death and hell, and is at the right hand of the Father, reigning in victory. He is the champion of heaven. He is the one who stands in between. And he is the one who out of love for you and me shed his blood, endured the cross when he had every power in himself to step off the cross and say, forget this, judgment to everybody. He could have called legions of angels to come to his rescue. But no, it wasn't weakness. It was great strength as he endures there until he could finally say, it is finished. Through perceived weakness, God has redeemed the people for himself through this greater David. His name is Jesus. So I want to just address, and I'll be done with this. I want to address the non-believers in the room. I'm not talking about, because it's in, in Miami, everybody believes in Jesus. Everybody. I'm talking about you actually looking at your sin and the wrath of God against your sin and you to make peace with God through Jesus Christ. Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one will come to the Father if not by me. Here is my question for you who maybe are here and is not a Christian. Who stands between you and death? 
Who stands between you and hell? Who stands between you and the wrath of God that will condemn you? If your best answer is you, there's not much hope for you. If your best answer is, hey, I cannot trust in perceived weaknesses, I am sorry. I, I cannot trust in what looks weak. I can't, no, no, I have to hope and trust in what I am convinced is strong for me. No, 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 I can only trust in me. I can, or I can only trust in money. Or I can only trust in power or in position or in name. No, I am, I, I am trusting in my heritage. I'm trusting in my family. I am trusting in the legacy of my last name. I am trusting in my education. I am, uh, I am trusting in my reasoning and my intellect. You could get the greatest giant and armor him up to make Goliath look like a baby in diapers at a childcare. And even that guy will fall short and could not hold back the wrath of God against him. Who is standing between you and death? Who is your champion? Who is your savior? You can never save yourself. Your works will never be good enough. Your church attendance won't even save you. You must look to the cross. You must look to the one who is perceived weak, yet the one who has the great strength and power to save. The one who shed his blood and demonstrated the power of God to redeem the heart through a gracious act of love. The greatest, most powerful act of love that this world has ever come to know. And he offers it to miserable sinners who would just accept and believe that they cannot save themselves and truly need to make peace with God. It's offered to you freely by faith alone, but it requires you to die to your perceived strengths, internal, external, wherever you seek it, and to find that the greatest strength is found in the one who was perceived weak when he shed his blood at Calvary. And to the one who is a believer, who you had your moments, you've seen the Lord's work in you. You, have, you remember that day when you finally understood, oh my goodness, I need a savior. You, you found yourself in trouble because you had no covering, no forgiveness of sin. All you had was God who is holy, which you cannot face him because of his holy justice that he cannot deny. You who then trusted in Jesus, repented of your sin, and believed in him by faith. I want you to know, and I need to remind myself, no matter what we face in life, victory is already ours. Victory is already ours. We don't have to live in light of what we see. We need to live in light of what is. So that therefore, we can speak like Paul and say, we are like sheep slaughtered all the day long. It's okay because this present life 
means nothing in light of the glory to come. And God has not given up and won't ever give up on his people. You think, but I can't suffer. Jesus suffered. What makes you think you shouldn't suffer? If we don't suffer, it's because God hasn't purposed that for us. But that could change tomorrow. You have to be convinced and live convinced that you have a champion, that you have a hero, that you have a savior. And if you do, rest in him, trust him, worship him, serve him, and proclaim him. Because there is no other hope for anyone in this world other than through Jesus. This is where this story is taking us, folks. This is where this story is heading. God in the pages of the Old Testament establishing for us clearly, I will provide a savior. Not who you think, but who will be sufficient enough to win the victory needed for us to be saved, redeemed, have fellowship with Almighty God.